So today we're going to be in a familiar text of scripture because it is his story on record. The text will be taken from Matthew 27. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the message for today. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So with it, there are a couple of things that lawfully you would appreciate knowing. Because I am not in law, even I need to be researching certain terms. So I'm going to present to you three particular terms that are important for you to know what has happened in the life of our Lord who has been put on trial. We celebrate on this day the after trial and the after judgment. But in order to appreciate exactly what he went through and to validate for each one of us so that we do not have a doubt, we look back at the record. The Jewish people would have had for their historical account a secular writer, and he was an historian of the Jewish nation. And he was assigned to do that, I first of all believe by God, but I also know that he was to pen the reality of what the records would show with regard to God, choosing a people, unique, a peculiar people indeed. And he was able to, by research, transcribe the data that was presented by God through the writers of the Old Testament and even those of the New Testament. The historian's name is Josephus, at least three major contributions of authorship he penned. But I simply present that to you to say evidence is mounting that is irrefutable. And he wasn't a believer, but what he did do was acknowledge that God was the God of this nation proclaimed by the priesthood and lived out by what we would call giants in our faith. And so taking that into account, that's your title today, Proof Beyond Reasonable Doubt. So if any of you doubt today, then you're going to be limited on how many reasons you have as to why you doubt. And I believe you're going to be substantially motivated and feeling liberated from fear and confident to exercise faith. Some of these definitions which law would know, lawyers, attorneys, but the same meaning, I believe, are these. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It is helpful to consider three standards by definition of what proof that a court can apply. The first one says this, a preponderance of the evidence 
That's a term. You've heard it probably. It says this is the lowest burden of proof in the American legal system. It's the lowest burden of proof. It means slightly more than a 50% belief that a fact is true. It continues, when explaining the idea of a preponderance of evidence to a jury, trial lawyers often use the idea of two stacks of paper, each with the same number of pages. If one more page is added, this is a preponderance. Well, we have one more page added, even more than that. With regard to meeting this standard, the preponderance of evidence. It's sufficient, but there's a higher standard than that with regard to adjudicating. The second term is clear and convincing evidence. This means it is an intermediary burden of proof that is similar to showing, here's our percentage, 75% likelihood that something has occurred. 75%. So that's your second term. The third one, which is where we get our title from, is beyond a reasonable doubt. It's noted lawfully as the highest standard of proof. It is applied in criminal cases because the stakes are high and a jury must be thoroughly convinced that the defendant committed the crime he is accused of beyond a reasonable doubt, above 75%, beyond. And so as we take a look in the scriptures, I'm going to direct your eyes to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll pick it up in verse 32. A substantial amount of reading. Let's go ahead and take it on. Jesus, as presented in this account, chapter 27, verses 32, begins simply this. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene. And so this is Jesus moving towards, ultimately, what was adjudicated against him, for which he was not found guilty and this is the name of that person, Simon, by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross, the Lord's cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This is showing us that there was seemingly an act of compassion in which it was to numb the pain that the Lord would be going through. However, he was already significantly pained in a beating that he took. Scriptures will offer that to us as we go back and look at it. Then, verse 35, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. 
and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. Notice the accusation. Jesus, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That would by not any standard that the Romans would have would be sufficient to indict a man to be executed. So we have right now something that would show itself as scheming and highly political. Though this event right now tells us what the Lord needed to do to pay for our sins, what needs to be reminded of, at least from the narration, is what he has endured on a legal sense right now. There have been trials that have taken place. There have been three that would be marked as civil trials. And so one of the things that we look back on is how did it happen? And certainly the word conspiratorial is appropriate today. Not so much in what we hear in current events, because we all have our misgivings as to now what does it mean? It's been so overused. There were three religious trials that would take place. And interestingly enough, or sadly enough, that is where it started. The refutation as to whether he, proclaiming to be God, would be guilty of blasphemy. As we've gone through the gospel accounts several times in their entirety, we know that Jesus was able to proclaim that historically and prophetically, but also practically. He touched lots of lives. He healed people that were genuinely afflicted, infirmed, and really by reason of vitality of life were dying, let alone the consequence of sin, which is death. Multitudes would be affected by what they saw and experienced. Their minds would be changed, their hearts would be changed, their bodies would be changed. In the ministry of the Lord, satisfying the scriptures in how he would touch people, let alone Jesus is identified as well as the judge of the universe, there couldn't have been anyone able to be both physician and adjudicator in such perfection without error. What this would represent is the evidence of a massive amount of people that could say by testimony, this is the man, as the scriptures have declared, who has come to us, Messiah. He is the Christ. The multitude and masses would have been designated as witnesses to these things. 
In the Gospel of John, it closes saying, there are so many things that were not even able to be recorded for volume's sake. But if volumes could be printed, they would be too innumerable to even read. You couldn't contain them all, is the idea there. That evidence would be substantial enough. So how could it have been that Jesus would ultimately have to satisfy a death that in civil terms and in spiritual terms was not due him? Well, we take a look at the religious trials that he was brought before. The first would have been Annas. He would be considered a political, spiritual person. He was basically the father-in-law of Caiaphas who will conduct one of those trials. Annas was the one who had a political motivation in basically running Jerusalem the priesthood, telling him what they ought to do and how they ought to do it. He was highly influential and we would say probably corrupt to the core. So he was in charge of the first one in which in examination he would send Jesus to his son-in-law. Caiaphas would have been the high priest. So Jesus has one strike based on Ennis, who was corrupt as a religious politician, and Caiaphas, who as a high priest would charge Jesus with blasphemy. Those are two religious, legal, seemingly, occasions in which Jesus would be presented but the third one is very interesting, too, because it actually almost has implication to us, the court of public opinion. Between Annas and Caiaphas, they were able to rouse bias against the Lord and ultimately be able to persuade that crowd to have influence over a man presented in the scriptures as the overseer, basically of Jerusalem, a representative of Rome. You know him as Pilate. Pilate would be in charge of the three civil legal hearings. And upon that, when he no longer had influence, over the people, which had become a mob. And we've seen in the past two years what mobs can do in our state, states across the country, out of control, devastation. These things ultimately were the persuasive effect on Pilate, who was able to say, I find no guilt in this man, none worthy of of death. I will assign to him a chastening. We'll beat him. 
and that should be sufficient. It only roused the anger of the religious institution against him, the Pharisees. And they again rallied in voice to have a charge that warranted the execution of Jesus. So these things right now are preambles ultimately to this event that now is in place. And the event that now is in place has everything to do with what Jesus would do, and that's displace a rock that at one time sealed him in a tomb and ultimately allow those who had questions concerning viability of his life, they would see shortly that this man who as God was convicted falsely would be released freely and freely influence those who would see him. Again, the case if by one paper could bring about reasonable doubt, proof beyond reasonable doubt, the evidence is stacking up in the Lord's favor. Notice what happens here. Not moving through all of the scenarios of the court scenes, but actually taking it to the firsthand account of those who in charge of his execution begin to see things. A couple of things to remind ourselves as well, that historically as you view the scriptures, you can very accurately see that prophetically these things were being fulfilled in the very moment that we're reading about. When the dividing of the garments among themselves was taking place, and the casting of lots for the robe that was peeled off of him. The account of that, and you can go back and look at it, was Psalm 22, verse 18. The years between David's birth and the birth of Jesus, roughly about 990 years, birth to birth, to have evidence prophetically satisfied from that many years back, David having lived 70 years to the time where Jesus at approximately 33 years is living out this experience as evidence that demands a verdict. And the verdict should be innocent before this court. Innocent before public opinion and bias. This man deserved not to die, but as God, it was his desire to take upon himself actually the guilt of the mob mentality, of the corrupt politicians, of the ferocious mindset of the Romans to rule the known world at that time. Lawfully, but very viciously, they were the ones that took perfection of execution seriously, and they did it without apology. 
This is the scene that's being played out right now. That time element is very important in terms of the weight of prophetic utterance. Just on that alone. Let me advance on here. The charge over him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It would have been written both in Latin, in Hebrew, and Greek. The known languages of those days, both spiritually, governmentally, and I would suppose to say in the articulate language of the Greek, inarguably. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. This will also be found in a passage that took place by a very well-known author of his day. And you can find this in the book of Isaiah. The specific area that you can research to corroborate that would be Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12. You'll see... The imagery there to almost exacting portrayal in what is happening here. Just presenting paperwork to you, evidence that demands a verdict. You'll see the picture. The psalmist pens it, Isaiah, the prophet, pens it. Irrefutable. The paper keeps getting higher to remove even similitude of balance. It's not even at 75% right now. It's above that. Release the prisoner. He is exonerated. He was unfairly tried. He was maliciously beaten for an offense that he did not do. We find him not guilty. The verdict should have been. Those who pass by blaspheme him. Interestingly, they blaspheme him, but he was charged by Caiaphas as a blasphemer for acknowledging that he was God. Blaspheming would mean that they are saying to God, the Son of God, curse upon you. To some degree, that's true. Jesus became a curse for us but he did not deserve to be cursed. And those who were cursing him ought to have known you do not carelessly use that language anywhere close to calling a judgment upon you from God. They wag their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, verse 41 the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others. Let me stop there. They are acknowledging that he saved others. A guilty man does not save another if he is being charged in this manner. They are citing evidence right now of a man who was filled with compassion and grace who did not come to overthrow 
the Roman government, nor establish himself as king at that time. He simply declared, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this earth. Because he was projecting the heavenly kingdom to come, but the responsibility for those who would follow him to live as kingdom patrons, as those who would look even as Abraham did to a city that was not built by hands. Come down from the cross. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. But that's not true. Coming down from the cross would have been the lesser of the miraculous of what he had already done. It really would have been. When you see what he did to lives, but you see also the miracle is why he would stay on the cross. Why would he, in the manner by which he had been charged, suffered abuse, neglect, disrespect, even a lesser rabbi would have received greater honor than what Jesus was given. Let him deliver himself. If he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing, same charge. One's mind would be changed radically in this day. He would have another witness actually hanging on a cross beside him. And he would promise that witness who was despairing, but able to say in his, if you would, final moments, Lord, may I come into your kingdom. And he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. His problem was resolved. His agony would continue. But another witness account would be given in favor of the Lord in the position that he was at presently. Verse 45 tells us the conclusion of this event in what we know as the execution or the crucifixion. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So from 12 to 3. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling out for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink a second time. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. A prophet respected historically and one who they presume that if he indeed is God, certainly Elijah would come down. If God took Elijah up in a fiery chariot, certainly he would be be permitted to come down and save the God who made that transportation possible. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and it says, 
yielded up the spirit. And then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. This would be a divine intervention from God confirming in the place in which the spiritual elites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin that ultimately had brought these three cases before Pilate and as well had desired to condemn the Lord, this would be beyond refutation. He could not, any one of them, say, how did that happen? Who got in the temple? It wasn't who got in the temple. It who, it's indeed reflective of who was the temple about. It was the Lord. And this broad drapery that was so thick that it took multiplied strong men to be able to lift it and to put it in place would have been impossible to, in that moment, tear down. This was an act of God the Father saying, because of the sacrifice of my Son, Jesus, access to me is now 24-7, not once a year, which is the only time a priest could enter in, any one of these priests. In this case, Caiaphas. Caiaphas would have been the only one that once a year would have been able to come in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. This would have been an indictment against him. How could this have happened? None of his men would have done it. What does it mean? Bypassing you, Caiaphas, because now people will pass through into the Holy of Holies by my son. It continues. Verse 52, evidence mounting, paperwork just working its way up on the scales. The graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Notice the semicolon. It says this, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Couldn't be anything more substantiating than a dead person resuscitating. Not like those which our culture exalts and finds itself rather enamored by, zombies, whatever. These were whole men and women that were raised up. When were they raised up, though? They were raised up to life to enter into the city as witnesses. The witnesses continue on behalf of the defendant to say, this guy is real. Our God is here. He did this. They would do that, and the semicolon is simply identifying that Jesus at this time would have to be buried and raised up on the third day. There would be a feast that would be celebrated, which is the Feast of First Fruits, and Jesus was the one actually who was being portrayed in that feast. The Feast of Passover had already taken place. This is that which shall take place. He is the first fruit of the dead. And so when we see this, The city's not going to be the same. There's earth moving, darkness that had been shrouding 
the entire city of Jerusalem, regionally, very likely it is presumed historically, globally. It was all dark for this occasion in which God would manifest his light in three days. Already having revealed Jesus as the light of the world, the Gospel of John gives that account. But what blinding light in truth would happen on this third day. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. In that utterance recorded here, they basically signed their death sentence. To say that would have levied a charge against them, which say they have found another God but Caesar. For a Roman centurion and those who were with him to declare that that person that they just executed was both righteous and the Son of God, they had already declared a saving faith in that person. But they'd also condemned themselves in that truthful utterance. Witnesses against. Originally, the Lord became now witnesses for the defendant for Jesus. They were willing to say in uniform, we got the wrong guy. That's God. Another page added. Another that builds the case that for the title, proof beyond a reasonable doubt to have an agency that was used, in this case, the Roman government, to execute the Lord by those who were precise in it and obedient to follow it, cruel in its manifestation, these men are actually, by their statement, repenting. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, where they're looking on from afar. These women serve and shall serve as one of the first broadcasters of the event that we celebrate today. They were the first publishers of the good news. That would have been something in those days. And it's actually a compliment to both how women can be very articulate both sensible and excited about what they see, and in particular what they know of the Lord. It's pretty dramatic. Women didn't have a lot of opportunity in those days to voice much about anything in politics, even in the home. But the Lord God gave them the publishing rights to the story that we celebrate today, another paper in the balance that changes things. It identifies the woman. Here we are now at the place that has to be the exclamation in what the Lord said would happen and in fact what did happen. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph 
who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. By the way, he is a rich man. Nicodemus, in another account, was a Pharisee who had come early on in the Gospel of John to have a conversation with Jesus. Both of these men will pair up together. Both of them acknowledged for who they were positionally, both in vocation, in one perhaps industrially, and the other certainly spiritually being a member of the Sanhedrin. They would have both laid their reputations on the line to do what is now being addressed in this passage of Scripture. This man went to Pilate, it indicates, asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. They confirm that he was taken from the cross. They were eyewitnesses to, in this case, two men who financed that and labored through it, meaning that they were willing by taking Jesus from the cross, defiling themselves. That's essentially what it means. In Hebraic law, you don't touch dead people. Because remember, he was being removed before the advent of the Sabbath. You want to talk about a heart? You want to talk about an indictment that could be poised against them? There they go. The woman saw it. Testimony. The next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests, Pharisees, gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. They have a quote from Jesus by those who accused him of being a blasphemer, naming himself as God, the people certainly identifying that to be true, the Christ, Messiah, and they're quoting him. That quote is substantial because it means that if it's validated by the experience of, in effect, a release from that tomb, rising from the dead, it would be proven by what is no longer in the tomb and by the evidence of this person being found by someone as alive. The Romans were good about killing, so they had no doubt and that's something that needs to be remembered. He was not resuscitated. He was not half sleeping. Jesus gave up his spirit, which he did, so he wasn't murdered. He was a willing sacrifice. He gave up his spirit, having satisfied the course that was before him. And the words that he spoke are now on the lips of those who indicted him falsely. So Pilate says, as they had come to him, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night, steal him away, and they say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. This is a lie. 
They weren't deceived. They were just blinded and deaf. That's truth. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went, made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So it's going to be guarded. Problem now with the story. Either Jesus saying who he was was false or saying who he was and what was going to be done by him through God would be without argument. Here's chapter 28 brings us to this exclamation mark. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Do you know why Mary Magdalene is so important? Because she was the one that had demon possession so significant that she would have been a terror in her community. And she was released from that bondage. She was not only put in her right mind, she was given a brand new heart and a mission to be a validating miracle by whom she was following, how she was observing, and ultimately a message that she would be giving. Everyone knew Mary. Everyone knew that something extraordinarily had been done in her life in which she was not the same woman. And that was the Lord that did it. The stories would have been out. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Some have thought, oh, they had to let Jesus out. Jesus was gone. <laughs> he passed through that stone. He's the rock of ages. A stone doesn't hold him back. It was to allow those who now had a curiosity, who had a heart to minister as they had been. It was to let them in. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards noticed this shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These were the ones that were established there to make sure nothing suspicious would be done by the disciples. And the disciples made no intention to come there. Only the woman that wanted to be able to offer their ministry of anointing him But these guards as dead men may presume that that's exactly what they became out of fear. The angel answered and said to the woman, the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. So the stones removed. They get to have an open house in this grave that was provided by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who's even richer now because of what he's done. 
who, by the way, was prophesied that he would do this all the way back in Isaiah. He is satisfying the reality of the word by ultimately what he did. Just like you guys, you're satisfying the reality of the word in where you're at, what you're doing right now, even on this day, in ways that you can't possibly know fully. But someone will have your story. Someone will have their heart having been changed by you in your witness and testimony of perhaps where you once were, what you once did, but no longer have a desire for. It's just wanting to be at the Lord's disposal with the Lord ultimately. He's not here. Come and see this place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. Spread the message, gals, to their what entourage of friends. These disciples were their friends too. They all ministered together. Isn't that cool that in a place of worship as men and women, we're co-laborers, we're family. We operate in just the beauty of strength and sensitivity and how we are able to give messages from perspectives that are both sincere and touching but he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear, great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. That was their objective. They heard that from Jesus, and that's what they satisfied. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, evidence beyond reasonable doubt, proof right here. Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. They had a grasp on God. Lost him in brevity for a moment of spiritual darkness, but it didn't stop their desire to tend him. They're rewarded with the words rejoice. Paul would make this more abundant and clear rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this is the salutation that the Lord gives them rejoice. The joy that I have given to you, do again. That's the prefix. Do it again. The joy that I have given to you manifested sincerely in you, do it again. That's why one of the worst things that you can do is try to obtain joy in reading the news. <laughs> but when you read the Bible, you go, oh, there's joy, there's comfort, there's peace. The other, I'm informed, but man, I'm depressed. The Lord says, press in. They're pressing in. They're grabbing onto him, worshiping him. They are worshiping him as the living Savior, as the Lord God, as the Jesus that they tended and walked with. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They get the first words from the angel, 
They get the second confirming directive from the Lord, and that's what they're on dispatch to do. The following sequence of verses tell us that soldiers that were there, which means very likely either some did pass away or they passed out like dead people. Sometimes that is true. I was knocked out once and they thought I died on the football field, but ammonia capsules resuscitated me. But these guys now are obviously being handled by the corruption of the priesthood and they're being bribed. And it says in verse 14, I'm just going to jump there. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. They had no ability to do that. These guys are basically by taking a bribe, violating both spirit and they're also violating effect of the law. They can't take a bribe. They can't lie. They'll be judged. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Jesus now to a multitude, both in disciples, but ultimately we know the book of Acts makes some very obviously clarifications. Eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to comfort her for them when he would depart. He's reiterating this teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's the story account from the perspective of a writer who was touched deeply by being in ministry for the Lord. I'm concluding the evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Turn to 1 Corinthians and we'll shut her down here. Chapter 15. For you attorneys and lawyers. Paul writes this. He actually writes it to a church that was well endowed in giftings, but obviously behaviorally and intellectually were suffering from amnesia about what God had done as the Lord was presiding over the works of the church. This is an important message because it's now Paul who was a famous lawman. He was renowned in what he even qualified as perfection in the law to satisfy it exactingly. And what he did was persecute the church maliciously. The reason that this is important is because he on that level would have been feared. An enemy of the church, a prosecutor without mercy. And he'll testify that he found grace and mercy by the Lord himself on a day that he did not presume 
would be a calling to follow him. Moreover, brethren, in verse 1, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is a good word for us today. Unless you believed in vain. You don't believe in vain. That means you're half-heartedly believing in the preponderance of evidence, which at 50%, mm, the basket fills, 75%, it's better. But to remove all doubt means that it gets filled with more evidence that supports you not having any doubt in the decision that you've made to follow the Lord. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That's why he was on the cross. According to the scriptures, that's why we looked at some of those passages or gave you reference to them, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas. That would be more familiar to us as Peter. And by the 12, one other has been added, Matthias had been in the upper room and voted as a replacement for Judas. Those guys didn't have any idea that Paul actually was probably the one that God was electing. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, more witnesses, more testimony, of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep. The majority is still in role here. They're still got the same story. It's not changing. Some have fallen asleep, but the majority, they're still right now on the scene. As I'm leading churches, as I'm teaching you, as I'm exhorting you, those 500, with the exception of a few, are still in good standing and moving forward in the faith. But that he, after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles, so there's another appearance of him. James, as you recall, in this reference, would have been the one who by title was both a half-brother to the Lord. Very likely that's the reference of this. Not James the Apostle, not at that time. There was John and James. James would have been executed John would have lived a hearty life to write the book of Revelation. This is very likely speaking about one of the chief doubters in the family, James. And he was a significant apostle in the days where they assembled in Antioch. And then last of all, notice what Paul cites, the lawman of lawmen. He was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am, notice this, the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is what I once did under lawful ordinance, under justification, both spiritually and civilly. I was ruthless to perfection. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Church, whether it's me, whether it's them, it's us and you believed. There's them, there's us. Our message is that belief is married with faith that is saving in grace that the Lord has provided as a gift to us. And so on this day, the scriptures rest its case. Not me, I simply presented the evidence that is here. And it's important that you be able to share the relevancy of it. Even to be stirred up. Have I become complacent? Have I become a doubter? Am I moving forward with the same zeal that Paul is able to certainly say he did? Or am I kind of just half-stepping it now because I'm too overwhelmed with what's going on in the world that I don't even necessarily think I'm vital to the things that God wants to change in the world? And then if so, where do you change? You simply change to where change took place in your life that affected your love of the Lord for living for him. It's difficult in these days, but this day removes the difficulty by inspiring us to know that with certainty, he is a risen savior. He's our risen savior. He's in the world today. He walks with us. He talks with us along life's narrow way is a classic hymn. And so the church meets today. We have the opportunity to once again be inspired to leave this place and to go out there enjoying what we do because it's an enjoyable life. Industrial, yes. Hardship, yep. Sadness, uh-huh. Illness, it's going to hit all of us sometime or another. But it is joy that the Lord gives to us that shall not be taken from us.